three reasons businesses fail. Number one, they don't have a system or what I call poor management. Management comes in all different different varieties. It could be poor systems. It could be uh, bad management. Meaning, I mean, think about any think about any company you've ever worked for. Okay, do you ever walk come home at night and go, "Oh my God, I can't believe that company stays in business." Do uh, you know how many people I talk to that have that same mentality? And there's three reasons businesses fail. So one is management. Number two is marketing, and number three is money. So I don't care what business you're in. If you don't pay attention to those three, you're always in that cycle. All right. Hi, everybody. David Donaldson here with my associate, Joe Martin. And today we have an excellent guest joining us from down in Atlanta, Hotlanta, as we're coming out of summer, right? My friend, Don DeRosa. Uh, it feels like I'm on back-to-back episodes here of part of Dave's origin story here. Last week, it was my primary lender that got me to get my license. And this week happens to be a fraternity brother of mine. Uh, Don and I went to IUP University. We were fraternity brothers with Kappa Sigma. And as it would have it, Don is also in real estate. But things happen. Funnily, you don't even realize it. Um, I was in Phoenix, Arizona, and I got to talking with a team leader at a Keller Williams Market Center before I ever joined, and they gave me this book. Now, we talk a lot about the red book. This is the not so often talked about blue book. And we talk about financial wealth, an incredible amount at Keller Williams and agents learning how to be financially independent, really wealthy, not just helping others. And I just happened to be thumbing through this one day, and I came across on page 368, and I kind of saw the smiling face staring back at me that I recognized, this guy named Don DeRosa. So, Don, welcome to Entrepreneurial Impact. Tell Thank us a little you. about yourself and how did this happen? Um, you know, I don't. I, I people ask me all the time. Uh, I have a lot more hair in that picture. I can tell you. Uh, <laughs> well, it wasn't I, that I long ago. When, I don't even know when that was. It's well, been it, it references your interview of '04, so sometime before that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I'll give you a brief synopsis of me or history of me i i live here in georgia atlanta georgia i got a wife and three kids uh two dogs one grandchild um so i started this business back in 97 98 and um I, before that i was a i was a district field service manager for airborne express and anybody knows anything about that field um they don't count hours so i worked 80 hours monday through saturday 12 15 hours a day for 10 years they moved me seven times in 10 years so i was kind of an efficiency expert if you will i would take a failing station fix it up they'd give me a blank check to fix it up then i'd fix it up move on to the next crap hole right did that seven <laughs> times seven times so you bought some houses on that journey huh i flipped my fair share of houses in seven years um but uh how my story started was uh, i saw this tv show this commercial this infomercial that says you can buy money you can buy houses no money down well um Thought I, I ordered the course, cost me like 300 bucks. Thought I'd be uh, the next millionaire in 30 days. Well, put it on the put it on the on the uh, living room floor. Again, thought I was going to be the next millionaire. Put it on the shelf. Didn't pick it up again until 1997. So uh, moving seven times in 10 years, you can imagine when if you've any any of you have moved, you pack up 100 boxes, and then when you get to the new location, you unpack 90. There's always those boxes that you don't unpack. So over seven moves, of course, of 10 years, my garage was full. So my wife literally grabbed me by the ear one day and says, okay, you need to go in there. We haven't touched these thing in years. If you don't go through these and find anything that we want, they're going on the curb. So I went through it, opened the first box, and lo and behold, there was Carlton Sheets sitting there on the top. So I started listening to it. And didn't really like it. 
because I wasn't sure because it was teaching me how to leverage property against one another. Meaning you go out, buy a property, use the equity in that to leverage, to buy a new one. And at the time he was talking to you how to put loans in your name. So I always felt uncomfortable with that. Not that I had bad credit. I just was afraid to use my credit. So, but I didn't know any better. So I started listening to it. Um, ended up seeing a sign that said, investor moving must, or a homeowner moving must sell this weekend. So I'm thinking, okay, this is a motivated seller. And it turns out it's an investor. So he gave me two pieces of advice. He says, go join your local RIA group and go see a educator named Ron Legrand. So I did both. And went to his seminar. And as they say, the rest is history. So over the course of now almost 26 years, um, I've bought hundreds of homes. Uh, I've used every technique known to man, subject to cash, lease options, options, you name it, wraparound mortgages, creative financing, everything. Um, I've flipped hundreds of homes. And that's kind of my forte is learning how to buy properties, no money down, using techniques like subject to wraparound mortgages, you know, creative techniques, and then I rehab them. I do have rentals, so. But that's kind of my story. That's how I got started in this business. And growing up, I went to one of the largest RIA groups. I was president of one of those RIA groups. But before I did that, they came to me when I was first new and they saw that I was successful at this. Now, back then I had, I was doing a technique where I would, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, I would take over a first mortgage subject to that was in foreclosure that had a second mortgage, a large second mortgage. So what I would do is I would, sh I would take the uh, second mortgage and short sell that second and take over the first subject too. And I was very successful. Short sales before short sales were in vogue. They didn't even call them short sales back then. Um, but I was very successful. The RIA group came to me and said, hey, you're you know, pretty good at this. Would you mind teaching a course? I'm like, oh, sure, why not? Didn't know the first thing about it. And my first course, I took literally put a little tape recorder on the side, did an eight-hour presentation, had somebody help me do it with the PowerPoint. And I recorded it and started selling it. And I called it How to Rob a Bank with a Ballpoint Pen. <laughs> um, I like that. Then I changed it to short sales something or other. I can't remember now uh, how to short sell second mortgages. But anyways, I like the first name better. But as the rest is history, I, over the course of 25 years, I've gotten 20, 30 courses now on every aspect of real estate. I've been teaching this thing for 25 years or 23 years now since 2002 full time. Um, and that's, that's so how me. I mean, was it really just a book that transitioned you from Airborne Express into real estate? No. Or was there some other like defining event in your no, life? Uh, I, well, I you, I, I'll tell you, my start was with Carlton Sheets. And I don't want to say my, it's what got me interested in it. Because I would, you know, I'm up three o'clock in the morning watching these infomercials. He's standing in front of palm trees or on the back of a boat saying, hey, you two can be a millionaire in 30 days. I didn't know any better. I was pretty young. And um, so I ordered it. It was like 300 bucks. And, um, but again, I didn't really, I listened to it because I didn't know any different. But as I went through my early journey, I met another real estate investor who pointed me to the RIA group, Real Estate mm -hmm. Investor Association, and another educator that I went to live seminars with. So it wasn't just a book or just a tape. It was, you know, I was in a network, which is the advice I would give that I do give everybody. You need to join your local RIA group and you need to have a, a tremendous network and you need to get some good, solid education, not YouTube videos. I mean, YouTube videos are great, but you can't learn some of these techniques in 10 minute snippets. You got to find somebody that knows what they're talking about. That's going to give you all the details to walk you through all the pitfalls. That's what I'm talking about. Well, so follow up on that. 
So when did you decide to leave Airborne Express and then go directly into real estate? Or like I old? left Airborne Express 97. I sure once I left Airborne Express, I moved to Georgia. I was my last stint with Airborne Express was in Detroit, Michigan. Um How was the water? It was dirty and ugly and it was the no offense to people who live in Detroit, but my, my, my experience in Sorry, Detroit I had to was, go there. <laughs> it was the, it was the dirtiest city I've ever been to. I tell you what, I didn't really? grow up. Wait, 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 dirtier than Philly. Yep. Hey, I didn't grow up in Philly and had some really awful potholes. What I can attest to having been in Detroit for hockey, their potholes are no joke. Yeah. You mentioned about the water. That almost swallowed my suburban being out there. It was brutal. Yeah. So, I mean, so I, my last stint was in Detroit and then I moved down to Georgia. And as they say, the rest is history. That's when my wife grabbed me by the ear when we were with our last move and says, okay, you got to clean this up. And I opened up that container and I saw these cassette tapes. That's how old they were. And back then, I mean, I didn't even have a cassette player to play them. So I was like, told my wife, I'm like, honey, I'm going to, to, to Lowe's to get something to Go throw this stuff away and ended up going to Radio Shack and getting Picked a converter. <laughs> no, but that, that's interesting. Like you were there's something you were gonna to toss away, and then something inside you said, Hey, I bought these, and it was something I connected with originally. Let me let me listen to these again. Now, prior to taking a deep dive into that box, had you acquired investment property? Had you not done anything except buy the tapes? I had one property, which was my own property that I lived in, but it was strictly by accident. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, having done hundreds of properties, and I, so at what point did you get your real estate license? I don't. I don't have my license. Look at that. Uh, I've never had my license. Smart although Keller Williams, although with Keller Williams keeps wanting me to get my license. There's some I benefits to it. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, that's impressive. So let's go. Like, as everyone likes to hear about flipping houses and wholesaling stuff and making all this quick cash and no one really wants to get rich slow. Right. So let's give the people what they want. What are your uh, three tips on flipping houses, Don? What, what are those? Three tips. Well, I can tell you there's three reasons businesses fail. Lay it on us. There's three reasons businesses fail. Number one, they don't have a system or what I call poor management. Management comes in all different, different varieties. It could be poor systems. It could be, uh, bad management, meaning, I mean, think about any, think about any company you've ever worked for. Okay. Do you ever walk, come home at night and go, Oh my God, I can't believe that company stays in business. Uh, do you know how many people I talk to that have that same mentality? And there's three reasons businesses fail. So one is management. Number two is marketing. And number three is money. So I don't care what business you're in. If you don't pay attention to those three, you're always in that cycle. So if you're a brand new investor, the first thing you need to be paying attention to is the management phase of that, which is getting myself educated, getting some good systems in place, uh, you know, getting a good foundation, putting goals, objectives in place. And then once I do that, then I got to do some marketing. Now I got to get my, now I got to get people to come to my door or at least raise their hand. Uh, most people, when they do marketing, they don't do enough of it or they market to the wrong people. So what I mean by that is when you're in today's world, if you're going to do it like I do it, you're looking for people that, especially if you want to do it creatively, where people give you their houses, literally, you're looking for motivation. You can't go and get someone that has just said, well, you know what, I'm going to move into a bigger house. Well, you can't convince them to give you the deed to their home or sell you their house at a deep discount. What you need to be paying attention to or marketing to are motivated sellers or distressed sellers in some force, whether it be the property's distressed or the financial situation of the person is distressed. If you're if you're marketing to someone outside of that that they not that they want to sell versus a need to sell, uh, you're going to be banging your head against the desk. So that's number two. Number three is money. Now I'll be the first to tell you I bought. I mean, the first four properties I bought, I bought for a dollar each, subject to, meaning a technique called subject to where the, the 
homeowner just literally signed over the deed to all four houses. He was an investor, burned out landlord. And he basically, I put a dollar earnest money on each contract and I took all four of them subject to the existing financing. And um, that those four houses kind of got me started. Well, I got a question. Do you still see that financing still happening? Because most conventional loans don't allow for that type of stuff. So like, how are you getting at that? Point? That's so like my question. question. On that uh, most of my, most of my students, when they come to me, the first thing they say to me is, aren't you afraid of the due on sale clause when somebody transfers a property to, to you? And the answer is no, I'm not. Um, I've done, I don't know. I can't even put a number on it. Uh, the number of subject to deals. And that's where the homeowner, if you don't know what subject to is, that's where the homeowner literally signs the deed over to you. Just yep. here, like Rodney Dangerfield, here, take my house, please. Right? So, I mean, I, that's all, I don't want to say it's a daily occurrence, but it's a monthly occurrence for me. And people go, well, aren't you afraid of the due on sale clause? No, and here's why. The due on sale clause, you have to understand the history, and this is not a history lesson. So if you ever want to know more, maybe we can do it. I know we're limited on time, so I don't want to go off on a, on a rabbit hole here. But the due on sale clause is in every mortgage nowadays. And if you read it, do you all know what it says? Isn't it? Uh, I've read it before. Isn't it basically, you're also betting the fact that the bank is going to say, I want the money right now. And if you don't come up with the money, they're going to repo the house, but then they're going to have to actually sell the house to get the money they want. So you're betting on the fact that they don't want the headache of actually trying to do it. So they're just going to honor the financing. Yes and no. But do you know what it says? No, I, I, unfortunately they, I don't. Now I'm going to learn something new today. We're going to learn today. Well, most people say that the bank will call it due. You know, if the title transfers bank will call the loan due. And that's not what it says. What it says is if, you know, there's a clause inside the security instrument of a deal that everybody, you know, when you sign a property, there's, there's really three documents that are the most important documents when you buy a house, any home, right? One is the warranty deed. That's what gives ownership. A lot of times people think that the bank owns their home. And that's not true. The bank doesn't own their home. When you buy a home, you get ownership on day one. That warranty deed transfers from the homeowner to you, and that allows you to take ownership of that property. Now, if you have cash, that's really the only document that needs to change hands, if you have cash. Well, most people don't have cash, so they've got to go borrow money. Well, then they go to whatever lender, traditional lender, let's use a popular lender, Bank of America, for example. They go down and they apply for a loan with Bank of America. Bank of America is going to give you a promissory note. So you're going to say, hey, I need to borrow $200,000. Well, they're going to make you sign a promissory note. Collateralizing the property that's worth nope, it. That's no, that's where Angel. most people have a mistake. That doesn't collateralize the property. All that does is promises to pay. That's a promise from you to pay. So if that's all I signed at a closing document and I defaulted on that, what do you think the bank bank's recourse would be they can't actually go within the property they're going after like your your personal property at that point exactly because there's no collateral that i've pledged yet if i just signed the promissory note people go well they'll foreclose no they won't um because there's nothing pledging that property as collateral so That's if, if you get a mortgage though right because if it, in certain states if it's held in a trust you're they well, do have recourse Yes. Okay. So you're on the right track. So think about, so you've got a promissory note, which is the promise to pay that money that you borrowed. That has some terms and conditions, 30 years, 4%, et cetera, et cetera, whatever the terms of that note is. Now banks um, will allow you, well, they won't allow you. They will also have you sign a security instrument, which is what you were referring to, which is, in certain states, they're called security deeds. Like in Georgia, it's a security deed. In other states, they call it a mortgage. In other states, they call it a deed of trust. Okay? But that, those instruments are all security instruments. Mm -hmm. Okay? What that instrument does is it puts, it pledges, whoever signs that, pledges that property or that secured interest to that property. 
So you've got the note and the security deed or a security instrument, and they cross-collateralize each other. So if you're in default of one, you're in default of the other. Okay, so those are the three documents that are most important. The other thing you have to understand is there are all states are what we call a judicial state for foreclosure, meaning every state, all 50 states, have a judicial process for foreclosure. So if somebody doesn't pay or somebody whatever violates something, in all 50 states, they can go the judicial route, file a lawsuit, which is called a list pendants, and get in front of the judge to say, hey, they're in violation of this. I want access to that property because that warranty deed is in that person's name. So the bank doesn't own it until they get the warranty deed. Possession, possession of the warranty deed, right? That's why whoever's, whoever got the warranty deed can collect the rents, they can collect the depreciation, the appreciation, everything, right? That's who owns it. That's the foreclosure process. The foreclosure process is the bank or the lender going and exercising their right to grab that document so that they have ownership of that, not just a lien. Well, there's other states like Georgia, for example, that we are a, we also have a non-judicial process. And what we also sign at closing is we sign what's called a waiver of borrower's rights. So when we borrow money here in Georgia from a bank, they won't, they will, they will put a fourth document in front of us, which is a waiver of borrower's rights. Now you'll say, well, I don't want to sign that one. I want to go the judicial route. They won't lend you the money. So there is no choice. So that way in Georgia, like our foreclosure process is two months max. Boom, you're in and you're out. Once they start the foreclosure, they've got a private notification for 30 days and then a public notification, and then you're out. You're done. You're foreclosed. Now, I don't know what it is in Philly or Pennsylvania. I can't remember. Are you Virginia's guys judicial? Huh? Virginia trust states. So Virginia is pretty close on like getting kicked people out as far as like, but are you judicial or non-judicial i don't know I, I don't believe they actually do the non-judicial side in virginia okay so do you have a list pendants is that how it works for you yeah then you're judicial so anyways so in that security deed that security uh not security in that security instrument there's a clause it's the due on sale clause that's where it says if the property transfers hands the bank and here's the operative word may at its option called the loan due full and payable. Well, you have to understand foreclosure laws too. So let me ask you a question. If I owe $100,000, my house is worth 200 and I'm Bank of America, or let's say Dave owes $100,000, I'm Bank of America, I'm foreclosing on him and it's worth 200. If it goes to the steps and I have an opening bid of 100, but you, you as the investor go in and say, I want to bid, I want to bid 150. What happens? Sell it for the 150, take the 50 profit and pay off the note. Who takes the 50,000 profit? The owner. The owner does, correct. So what happens, and this is where people, people think that the bank want your house. Banks do not want your house ever. Ever they go well, they just want all my equity. No, they don't. The only thing Bank of America can, can get is a hundred thousand dollars plus whatever fees they tack on. That's it. Anything above that, unless unless nobody bids at the steps and they get it for a hundred thousand. That's the only way. But in this day and age, I haven't really seen that be the case. Um, very, your house would have to be in really bad shape for a bank for someone not to buy it at the steps, right? Correct. So, so the other thing you need to understand about banks is they're in the business to make money, not buy houses. Okay. That's a liability for them. When they foreclose, that's a liability. Number one, it's very expensive for them to foreclose. And number two, the more default they have, the less, the more penalized they become by the, the Fed, by the Federal Reserve. So as their default level goes up, they are not allowed to lend out money. So they're not going to arbitrarily force a foreclosure that somebody's paying just because they violated a due on sale clause. 
because they got a whole bunch of other stuff coming back to them that they don't that they're they they don't want. So the minute that happens is, you know, banks don't have to report anything to the Federal Reserve or FDIC for the first 90 days. So all the way up to 90 days, banks are on their own. That's why customer service badgers the hell out of you. On the 91st day, they now have to file a report with the Federal Reserve, with the FDIC, that says, I have bad debt. The more you, the more of the, the more houses they have 91 days and above, the worse their portfolio is, the worse, the worse, the worse their standing is with the FDIC. And as Did that number close, grows, is that, that also where you this is fascinating conversation. So is this why then they get out of good standing with like Freddie and Fannie as far as what they can actually sell off? Does that actually impact? Yeah, yeah because of the default rate. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, they want to get you out of default past. They'll, they're fine with you paying late fees all the way up to 90 days. They love that because they get extra fees. But what they don't want is they don't want you to go to 91 days. Okay. So that's detriment to them at that point. What's that? It's too much of a detriment to them. Like you said, yes. So, so think about, so think about that for a second. If I have, if I'm in, if, if let's let Joe, let's say you're in foreclosure. I come along as the investor. You're three months behind on your mortgage payment. You're going to head into foreclosure. Is the bank happy with your performance of your loan? No, not at all. Right. They're, they're going, oh, my God, he's not he's, he's getting close to that 90 days. So I come in and I say, OK, Joe, I'll give you a few thousand dollars for your equity. And. I'll. I got to buy your house. Uh, you're going to util- I'm going to utilize the financing that you have on it and we're, you're going to convey the title to me. I don't ever say I'm going to take it over subject to people don't understand that. But so I say that and you say, OK, fine. I bring it current. Now, is Bank of America happy or sad? Winning. Winning all day. Okay, so here's another question I have for everybody. Do you think for a second, if I had enough money, I could write a check to pay all of your mortgages? And do you think your your lender, whoever that was, would care where that check comes from? Green's green, right? It's greenback. Well, they always go like this. They go, wait a minute. If you send in a check that doesn't have your name on it, or doesn't have the seller's name on it, aren't they going to know? No, that's not how it works. First off, 99% of the people now don't pay their mortgage using sending in checks. They just don't. And even if they do, they don't have a person standing there going, hmm, this is so-and-so looking on a computer. <laughs> These don't match. No. First off, when, if they, when they do get the checks, they go through what's called a lockbox. Right. And it's just a processing center that really nobody's present except some people pushing, making sure nothing gets jammed up. Correct. So they're not looking at that. That's not where the red flag will go up. Where the red flag will go up is when you change insurance carriers or update your insurance policy. That's where the bank, you got to notify them because if you don't notify them, and there's a catastrophe, it's not covered. So the technique there is you've got, you know, a lot of times we'll use personal or we'll use uh, land trust to do that. And we'll send that, we'll put a property into a land trust, send it in. And there's all kinds of reasons properties transfer hands via land trusts or trust in general. So there's some techniques out there. Do I still violate, even if I put it into a trust, do I still violate the due on sale clause? Yes. Am I worried about it? No. Should you be worried about it? That's up to you. I can't tell you what to worry about, what not to worry about. <laughs> but it's but clear we're need, not attorneys here. We're not yeah, you need to know. Right. You need it depends. to know about it. Yeah, you need to know about it. You, it it's there. It's possible. So I don't want to tell you, oh, it will never happen because I would be wrong. Um. Well, theoretically, worst thing that happens, okay, they force the issue, sell the house, you're still making a profit. Exactly. 
And if you're in my school of thought or my room where I'm teaching you, I'm teaching you to buy at such a low loan to value ratio that you can go out in any market at any time and still refinance the property if you had to because the loan to value ratio is so low. And you don't, I mean, yeah, just, it's not an issue. Right. We're not talking 20% margins here. No. Mm-mm. No. That's now, my I average never... profit, I have a partner, her name's Chrissy. Our average profit for a flip, buy, fix, and flip is about 100 grand per deal. So, this has been one of the most fascinating, amazing call, like podcasts that I've been on because, like, it's fat. Like, I just literally, I, I just got my Virginia license. So all the terms that you're going through for financing and contracts and all that kind of stuff, I had to like actually go out and get my VA license was all in there. So as you're talking these terms, I'm like, yep, I remember that. Yep. I remember that literally just did this like two Saturdays ago. So all your technical terms, I was like, wow, I never actually thought about it. Like, yeah, you do have to do on sale, but that's if they actually want to enforce it. Kind of like when you sue somebody, yeah, like they might be, you might be entitled to damages of this, but most people want to settle it outside of the court because they don't want to go through the time and headache of it. It's exactly what the banks are doing. They're like, eh, well, here's we'll, the we'll other thing it. that I didn't mention. And I, again, I, this is your, you guys tell me how much time you want me to spend. But here's the other thing I didn't mention. When you put a property into a trust, there's, a, there's only a couple states. Pennsylvania is one of them. But I have a way around that one as well um, because I'm from PA. But most states, when you put a property into a land trust, you do not have to show beneficial interest on public record. Um, so even when you, when you put like for, I'll use Georgia just as an example, cause I'm most familiar with that. But um, so for example, I put a property into trust in Georgia, nobody sees who the beneficial interest. So let's say the bank does decide that, Hey, they want to go fishing and see if, they want to call this due. Well, under the Garn St. Germain Act, which if you don't know what that is, look it up and read it. But many years ago, um, all loans were assumable back, especially in the seven, late 70s, right? They were double digit. They were all assumable. And so banks were calling stuff due and foreclosing and they were putting what's called due on sale clauses in those mortgages back then, because think about it. What do banks want? They want money. They don't want houses. They want money. So how does a bank make money? Bank makes money by borrowing from the Federal Reserve at this rate and lending out to the consumer at this rate. That, difference, that difference in between is called their yield spread. Well, back in the 70s, if you had a loan that was currently at 8% and the prevailing interest rates were 19%, which they were between 15 and 19%, banks were missing out on a whole bunch of money. So they were foreclosing. So homeowners fought back, took it all the way to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court came back with a ruling called the Garn St. Germain Act. And, um, and basically a couple of things that came out of that ruling was the bank said, People can put it into a trust, a land trust. It has to be what's called an intervivos trust. Uh, A couple conditions where the homeowner had to stay in the property and had to be an intervivos trust, right? And if that were the case, the bank, that ruling created it or made it illegal for a bank to foreclose. So if a bank forecloses, they're in some real trouble inadvertently or improperly. So they get they get penalized and now they've got improper foreclosures on their records. They don't want that. The FDA, they don't want the FDIC to do that either, right? So in Georgia, for example, nobody sees the beneficial interest. It's not public record. So the bank, even if they wanted to do the due on sale clause, they're not sure who owns it. They have no idea. <laughs> So they're on a fishing expedition to begin with. I mean, I've had homeowners actually call the bank in the past many years ago and say, hey, I want to get a new loan. This loan's still in my name and so-and-so is making the mortgage payment. He owns it now, blah, 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 blah. 
Bank, they give my number, bank calls me. I'm like, yeah, I'm not paying it off. They send me a letter. I throw the letter in the trash and nothing ever happens because banks don't want houses. Now I don't necessarily recommend people to do that. So hear me loud and clear. And we're going to have to have disclosures all over this broadcast. I'm just going to say yeah. up front, in the middle, in the back, maybe flashing across the banners. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but here's the, here's the thing you need to remember. There is no do on sale jail. It is not illegal to do a pro take a property subject to the existing financing. It is not illegal. As a matter of fact, well, I don't have a HUD statement, but if you look at a HUD statement, on the right hand, well, on both sides, actually, I don't know what number it is, about halfway down, you will see a line on the HUD statement that says, taken subject to, subject to. It's on there. It is not illegal. They do not put you in jail for violating that clause. The worst thing that could happen is they call it due. Now, let me give you some examples of what someone might call it due or would call it due. Reverse mortgage. Don't ever do, don't ever try to take a subject to on a reverse mortgage. The whole intent of a reverse mortgage is to get the home. That's it. So that's a natural course. So that has that's no bearing on all the other stuff. So if you have a reverse mortgage, don't even think about doing subject to. The other thing that you may want to be, be aware of is um, small credit unions. Small credit unions don't like that because of the exposure because they, they own those loans in-house, yeah, right? Most of the big banks, they sell those to Wall Street and who knows who owns those, right? And it's just never, most of the people that are just servicers. Right. So there's only a couple, you know, uh, home equity lines of credit HELOCs. Um, I've heard some of them got called due. I've never seen one, but I've heard they might have a, a higher propensity, but again, I've never seen one, but that doesn't mean that that won't happen either. Hmm. Well, this turned into a heck of an educational seminar. So for those of you listening at home, I hope you took good copious notes. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I mean, there were certain things that I was now, it's got my brain thinking on different ways to actually go through this because depending on your appetite for risk and being like, you know what, I call your bluff and see if you want to roll, <laughs> you want to roll with it. Man. <laughs> like, well, here's the thing, <laughs> but Everyone thinks it's subject to is the most powerful technique in real estate today, because as the investor, I can control an enormous amount of real estate and none of it's on my personal credit and I don't have to qualify for a single loan. I could do a so hundred of these. Question. What happens if you don't pay? So if you, you got your well, contract. Subject so to, that was my, that was what I was getting pay? to. That was what I was getting to real subject to is the most powerful technique, but also comes uh, with, you know, as they say, with, you know, great power comes great responsibility. So I only recommend people to take over loans subject to as a financial tool for them. If there's any shot that they're not going to make those payments or their intention is not to make those payments, then I'm going to tell you, you have no business using that technique. That is dangerous. You're going to end up on the five o'clock news. You're going to end up on a lawsuit. It's just not a good business practice to do that. You know, I use subject to as a financial tool, meaning I can go buy, if I only have to bring five, six, seven thousand $7,000 to bring your loan current, okay, rather than pay $150,000 to buy your note or to buy your home, how many, if I, you know, if I have money or if I have private lenders, how many, if, if I only have $100,000, how many houses can I buy subject to at five dollars $10,000 versus paying all cash? Lots. This just triggers a thought. I mean, we just watched an, an explosive period of time for refinance and sales, right, on, on, on our side of the ball, right? But now I listen to you talk and I start thinking about where interest rates are so low. And obviously, you were touching where they were so high. But where they are now, this sounds incredibly as an attractive opportunity, because rates are so low. I mean, there are so many people now in that below three threshold that unfortunately will find themselves in some sort of challenge. Exactly. So let me interrupt that. Think about this. For the last seven years, right, we've been in the best economy that we've been in. Subject to, although we've been doing, I've been doing it, I don't buy as many as I did before because 
the there hasn't been a need for it. Because think about it, if I'm a homeowner the last seven years, all I have to do, even if I'm in foreclosure, if I'm in, even if I'm in the worst distress, financial distress possible, all I have to do is whisper, I have a house to sell. And I'd have 30 people wrapped around my house giving me offers over full price. So there hasn't been a need for that type of technique. But think about this, that's all gone. We're heading in an economy that's flat at the very least and nine times out of 10 gonna be going the other way. So what that's gonna create is that's gonna create stress, it's gonna create chaos, it's gonna create opportunities for someone that knows how to solve problems for homeowners that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. So think about this. Everyone thinks it's an advantage for me to buy, and it is. But it's also an advantage for the homeowner because think about this. If you're, if you're six months behind and I go in and I buy that note or I buy that uh, house, you're a, I take you out of foreclosure by selling the house, but you still have, it just, you can see an abrupt stop. But what if I told you that, hey, as a homeowner, if you allow me to take over that, you convey the title to me, take over the title, and I make the payments on your behalf, the loan's going to stay in your name. So every month, so that $30,000, because I have a lady right now, she's behind by thirty grand. i am going to pay that off. I'm going to bring that current. So right now, her credit shows that she's $30,000 behind. She's, I don't know how many months behind. So I'm going to bring it current. Then for the next six months to a year, I'm going to make those payments on time. The loan's still going to be on her name means it's still going to be on her credit report. So what's her credit report look like now? Paid as agreed. Yeah. And it's got a full six months to 12 months paid as agreed. And then when I go to sell it, now it's a satisfied mortgage as well. So if I'm her, and this is how I advise all of my clients, make note of that. And when you go to borrow, just say, here, here's what you're going to see. I ran into some issues. I lost my job, whatever, but I got back on my feet. You'll notice that we fixed it from this point forward. And I should be good. So what percentage of subjects when you were doing them more regularly? Right? Well, were prior, staying, to, prior to the last anybody, seven years, I would staying. think. How many of them were staying and becoming your tenants? I'm sorry that again. I, I stepped over. So you were taking subject two, so basically you were taking over. Were you giving them the option to stay in the house and therefore they were renting back from you? Or were they part no. of it? They had nope. to let's they let's had address to that right now for anybody listening. That, that's what I'm asking. Do not, under any circumstance, if you're going to take over a loan subject to, do not, under any circumstance, allow them to stay in the property. Yep. There's only a couple exceptions and you won't see those exceptions very often. Most of the time when you're in a position to take over that loan subject to, it's because someone is behind on their mortgage or they're in a, what, for lack of a better word, a distressed situation or just they're in a desperate situation to get out from under it, right? They're gonna want to say, hey, can you lease back the property to me? And I'm gonna tell you, do not do that because here's the thing. Let's say their payment's $1,000 and they're six months behind. Well, when you bring it current, your payment's $1,000. So are you going to want to increase the rent to $1,400, $1,500 for, let's say, prevailing interest rates to make money? Isn't that why you're in the business, to make money? Sure it is. Well, if you do that, even if you keep it at 1000 bucks, what's the point? You're not making any cash flow. So what's the point of keeping them in there? I just wanted to ask that question because I can see a lot of people doing the math and they go, oh, I can just leave them in there. No, the detriment detriment for that is you you do that. I was in a seminar, I was teaching a seminar in Texas many years ago and a guy up front was, he was telling me, he goes, I do subject to all the time. I said, oh, I'm thinking this guy's going to be my new best friend for the next afternoon, right? You know, I call on him until I... Till I started calling him, he's like, yeah, I take it over subject two, and then I lease it back, and then I, I evict them. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, that's my strategy. And I'm like, so I, and during a break, I went outside, and I told the lady putting on the event, I said, you need to ask him to leave. I don't want him in here. 
doing that. That is not a technique. That is not something you should be doing. I tell everybody, look, it is our policy as an investment company that when we buy this, you have to move. We'll give you some money to help you move, but you got to go. Because if they can't pay the $1,000 now, which is what put them behind, what makes you think that they're going to be able to pay you? And the minute they don't pay you, what do you have to do? You have to turn around and you have to evict them. Well, the minute you evict them, that opens you up to a lawsuit. It opens up to the six o'clock or five o'clock news. You know, a big bad investor takes advantage of homeowner. Mm -mm. You don't want any of that. You want to be as open and upfront and as clear and as transparent as possible. No, you don't want anybody making assumptions on any of this. This has been great. Look, Don, I really appreciate your time. And I, we obviously could turn this into a seminar. Maybe that's a conversation for another day. Uh, I know, especially because I can see Joe's mind and wheels working here. He just wants to kind of pull this apart. So we'll make arrangements for that. But before we wrap up, I do just kind of want to bring it back to where we started. I, I want to ask a couple of questions about, and I'm glad you touched on opportunity and where, where we're going in the marketplace, right? Because that jumped off the page of news too. But two, I was like, how did this part happen? Like who came to you? Was it? about how you ended up in the book. Well, because I was doing such a good job with the Rio group, I was, I don't know if I was president at the time. I may have been. No, I don't think I was, but I was, they, no, in fact, I know I wasn't. Uh, Cause they came to the local Rio group and I guess they asked, you know, they were writing the book um, and somehow my name got brought up and they called me um, um, Jay. Do you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. Do you know any of the writers? Jay? Jay called me and then he had a couple of his underlings, you know, call me and I probably, and asked me if I, he said, Gary was going to be doing a book. We're going to be writing a book and wanted to know if I'd be willing to participate in it. I was like, sure, why not? And the funny story here's, so I spent the next, I don't know, six months to a year giving him like, all this stuff, giving them all my best stuff, telling them how to do interviews an hour at a time. And right before the book came out, um, they sent, I got this package in the mail. Now, I remind you, I had spent almost a year, you know, on the phone, like, you know, a couple of times a week. And they had sent me this package and inside was a manuscript, which is the manuscript of the book. But it was more so like the whole front half was a thank you to everybody, right? There's, I don't know how many people were in that manuscript, right? I'm looking, I went through this thing, I don't know how many times, looking for my name, going, turn the page. I'm like, I was so mad. My name wasn't anywhere on that. I was so mad. I was fuming. And so I threw the manuscript away. I was like, the hell with this. And about, I don't know. Maybe a week, two weeks, three weeks later, I get this box in the mail. And it's a box of millionaire real estate books, right? And a thank you. And I took one look at that and I picked it up and I'm like, you know what? Screw this. And I literally was walking to the trash can and I decided, well, you know what? Curiosity got the best of me. So I opened it up and started thumbing through it. And that's when I saw that I had a two-page bio in the back of that book. And I was like, Oh, okay. That's not too bad. I feel better, I feel better now. It's hilarious. Yeah. So that that's my story. That's pretty funny. But yeah, I mean, they came to me. Um, you know, I never, I don't know that I ever talked to Gary directly. I mostly talked to um, Jay. Jay or another, Dave Jenks. Dave, yeah, Dave, and then mostly, I don't know if it was one of his assistants, ghostwriters, whoever they were, uh, but they they did most of the interviews with me. It's a cool experience, I mean, I mean yeah. you know, 20 years ago, and now Gary and Kelly KW, the largest real estate company in the world, right, and you're a part of that, so I think that's a pretty amazing story, and again, that was like connecting the dots for us on the back end, where I just happened to be thumbing through, I'm like, hey, I know this guy. Well, you know, it's funny because when I go see a lot of houses, sometimes they're agents and I always ask, you know, what what uh, company they're with. And if they tell them they're with Kelly Williams, and I always ask them if they've seen, if they have the blue book. And almost every one of them have it in their car. Yeah. 
I mean, you guys are like a religion with that stuff. Right? <laughs> and uh, yeah, the, the blue book and the red book, you know, you yeah, only go without it's it. Like a, it's like a, like a cult with that, with those books. Right. Um, and I helped, in fact, the local Keller Williams, I helped cut one a couple occasions, them teach some of the things in there. They asked me to do a guest appearance, which is pretty cool. So, and I do a, a weekly coaching call um a weekly set like i do a year-long program with all of my investors or in my students and i meet with them every monday wednesday and friday and on wednesdays monday and friday are zoom calls and friday is in person and also on zoom so everything's but um i spend a whole year holding people's hands going through a whole curriculum so why don't you shoot that curriculum over i'm sure we can get some people to be interested in it so well, I mean, it's simple, expertrealestatecoaching.com. Gotcha. Cool. So I, before we, I just want to have to tell you that I had to look up how to rob a bank with a ballpoint pen, and it came up. And now, Joe, maybe this is somebody you know. Florida man robs bank with ballpoint pen. I, I'm just saying. No, that know. wasn't me. <laughs> well, by the time I published that course, it wasn't called that. Okay, fair enough. When I first started it, before I generally published it and put it out there for everybody, that was what I was calling it, how to rob a, And then somebody talked me out of that. I wish I hadn't been talked out of it, but somebody talked me out of it and they says, do you really want to put that out there, you know, in a negative way? I'm like, eh, you're probably right. So I changed it to something safe and innocuous. That's got to be, now it can be your podcast. Like you can go back to it. Yeah. How to rob a bank and a ballpoint pen. Yeah. <laughs> When you come on, we'll bring up to Virginia, you'll teach, and that's what we'll call it. It'll be all good. Hey, I'll come up there and teach. Get a all bunch right. of people in there. I'll come up. Uh, I'll do an all-day Saturday seminar for uh, Subject 2. Yeah, and we'll bring your buddy in from Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was mad. He was, he was, he was not happy with me. Like, you can't, can't please everybody right but i just i don't like i don't like that type of because he was pretty negative about people people not the techniques he loved the subject predatory too. he said this was great well, i think it's important we talk as real estate about you know living the right life and coming from contribution so you're just providing a tool and a vehicle that is not there to harm somebody but to really really help them and that's right I love the way that you explained it. Like, I think that makes so much sense about, look, we're restoring credit. We're getting them out. Like they're able to survive this and carry on and not have to wait seven years and go through bankruptcy. Like mm -hmm. that's the right way to look at a vehicle like this. If everybody does their part and everything is, I mean, it, it's, it's a win-win for everybody. And there's other things like if they don't like subject to or don't feel comfortable with that, there's other techniques we can use like wraparound mortgage, different things like that. Yeah. So there's all kind of alternatives to that. If somebody says, Hey, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't feel comfortable with that. Okay. Well, I, Don, I can't thank you enough. I, I really appreciate taking your time to spend with us. And no joke, you know, Joe and I will go back and we'll talk about this. And maybe we'll work on getting you up there because I think this would be incredibly valuable for this market, just as we talk about shifting markets and where we're going and, and, and we'll work that out. So from Joe and I and Entrepreneurial Impact, Don, thank you. It's been a great to reconnect and I'll see you soon. And now we'll yeah. see you sooner or later up here in Virginia. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Don. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Man.